This is a Kansas Memory, a Kansas State Historical Society podcast featuring glimpses of Kansas history from documents in the Library and Archives collections. Our last podcast featured passages from the Diary of Samuel Reeder, a Shawnee County farmer, in the months leading up to the Civil War. Samuel joined the militia at the beginning of the war, but they saw little action until Confederate General Sterling Price's army headed west along the Missouri River toward Kansas in the fall of 1864. Price wanted to extend the South's control over Missouri and Kansas. Although some members of the Kansas militia refused to enter Missouri, Reeder marched with Company D of the 2nd Kansas State Militia to Russell's Ford on the Big Blue River on October 21st. The Union's goal was to prevent Price's troops from crossing the Big Blue and advancing west from there into Kansas, but Price succeeded in crossing the river at Byram's Ford on October 22nd. The 2nd Militia, with a section of battery, marched north to support the Union forces at Byram's Ford, but was severely outnumbered when it encountered the rebel troops in the late afternoon. These are excerpts from Samuel's eyewitness account of the militia's role in stopping Price's advance near Westport, Missouri. He wrote this narrative in 1898, based on his 1864 diary. We came in sight of Captain Burns and his men, about 200 yards north of us, halted near the stone barn. As we caught sight of them, Colonel Veal exclaimed in a tone of dismay, They have corralled our battery. My first thought was that Captain Burns and his men were prisoners, or about to become so, but I soon saw I was mistaken. The colonel immediately gave rein to his horse, and we dashed up the slope at a rapid trot that sometimes merged into a gallop. Without a doubt, it was a noble sight as our battalion crowded swiftly through the narrow lane with the dust and clatter and thunder of horses' hooves on the hard road. It was exhilarating. It was one of the inspiriting pictures of glorious warfare. A little less than one minute after turning into the lane, the head of the column reached a point a little in rear of the battery and came to a halt. Altogether at last, every man of the battalion now stood within the narrow limits of the Mockby Lane. Some took advantage of the brief halt to prepare their arms and accoutrements for the coming strife. It was a trying ordeal, as many have since confessed. The uncertainty was worse than the actual conflict that ensued. The hopes and fears and varied emotions of this devoted band of citizen soldiers must be left to the imagination alone. Fortunately, they could not foresee what the hour was to bring forth. The lease of mortal life of more than a score could now be counted by minutes only. They had seen the rising sun that morning for the last time on earth. The day was far spent, but its declining rays were to shine upon their stiffening corpses scattered along the highway, through the cornfield, grove, and farmyard. Out of our little force of scant 300 men, 114 were to swell the frightful list of killed, wounded, and prisoners. Two officers, Veal and Huntoon, rode forward to try to assess the rebels' strength, but quickly retreated when they were nearly gunned down by sharpshooters concealed along the road. The militia returned fire, and Reeder's horse, Fox, became uncontrollable. Reeder had to take Fox to the back of the line where he sent him away carrying his wounded friend, Judge John P. Greer. While he helped Greer mount, Reeder observed two men deserting. Two young men came riding through the gap and into the road. They were casting furtive glances backwards, and after a momentary halt, one said to the other, Come, we had better be going. They were stragglers, what General Howard calls army chaff, that scatters from the field at the first fire. Judge Greer heard what was said and called out to them, No, don't go. Probably he knew them and wished to bring them to a sense of their duty. 
but it was to no avail. They paid no attention to what he said and rode off in the wrong direction. They were the only men I saw actually leaving the field before the final catastrophe. Fox was not the only horse to balk at the gunfire. Many of the farmers were forced to fight on foot, whereas the rebel horses were trained for battle. I saw Colonel Veal ride up and strive by voice and gesture to restore steadiness to the wavering mass. I heard him cry out in a tone of stern entreaty, For God's sake, men, keep your places in line. Lieutenant Colonel Green was doing all that was possible to encourage the men also, but the trouble was mostly with the horses, not the men. To make matters worse, a number of rebel sharpshooters had secreted themselves to the west and the north of the grove, and their fire was very annoying to the battery and our left flank. For a time, the air seemed alive with the wicked whiz of rifle balls. Some of them came altogether too close for comfort, with a spiteful whiz-zip that made the flesh fairly creep. Some of them sounded like a drop of water falling on a red-hot stove, and others with a ragged, disagreeable buzz that was extremely disgusting to one's nerves. I had heard the whistle of hostile bullets once before, but nothing at all to compare to this. The rebels disappeared. Since the line was in disarray and Samuel could no longer locate Company D, he joined a small group of soldiers who seemed to no longer have a commander at all and pursued the rebels thinking they had retreated. Too late, they realized the enemy was merely regrouping. There came the quavering notes of a bugle call from over the prairie, directly in our front, but we could see nothing. About 250 yards from us, a swell on the prairie and a corresponding depression behind it, very much like the ones already described in the old cornfield. We were not kept waiting. A long line of horsemen seemed to rise up in front of us on the prairie. First the rebels' heads appeared, then their shoulders and the horses, until all were fully revealed on the crest of the swell. No one of our party cried, Friends, this time. At their first appearance, our party commenced firing. The rebel line came to a momentary halt. A fretwork of blue smoke, the whiz and zip and ping of rifle bullets about our ears, and then the hostile line again moved forward. The crisis was coming. I fired. The line broke into a trot, then a gallop, and a wild yell arose that resembled a scream rather than a cheer. It was the southern war cry, the redoubtable rebel yell, and our foe was coming down upon us like an approaching tornado. Overwhelmed by the charge, Samuel first sought cover, then tried playing possum. Instinctively, I threw myself on my face among the old corn stalks and dried up weeds. A horse will not willingly tread on a prostrate man. They divided and dashed past on either side, so close that their hoofs nearly struck my elbows. But I was unhurt by hoof or bullet. My head being so near the ground, the noise of their galloping was prodigious. I could not estimate their numbers. Neither did I care. Samuel's ruse did not work. He remembered what he had heard about Andersonville, the Confederate prison camp. That, and the fear of being accused of cowardice, made him consider resisting his captors. I had said and believed that instant death on the battlefield would be far preferable to the torture and starvation of a southern prison, but I somewhat modified my resolution when the test was applied. A soldier's glorious death could now be mine. The slightest resistance, the motion of a hand toward my weapons, would bring it about, swift and sure, but I was in no mood for martyrdom. Sudden death has an ugly look, when he sternly and unexpectedly stares one in the face, one naturally clings to life under almost any circumstances, and I decided to not throw it away in this particular case. General Price bore the reputation of a humane man, 
and I suppose his followers resembled him in this particular. As a prisoner in his hands, I believed my life would be perfectly secure, whatever might happen to me afterwards. I was not then aware that bushwhackers were tolerated in his army, and consequently felt no apprehension of personal harm in the thought of surrendering. The encounter was a disaster for the Shawnee County Militia. They were outnumbered six to one, short of ammunition, and badly positioned to defend themselves against the battle-hardened Confederate troops. In spite of their disadvantage, the Kansas militia troops under Colonel Veal delayed the Confederate troops. Kansas Army regiments then deflected Price's army at Westport and pursued them into southeast Kansas. Samuel was soon able to escape and subsequently witnessed Price's defeat at the Battle of Mine Creek in Lynn County, Kansas, three days later. Colonel Veal's official report of the Battle of the Big Blue stated, It's not for me to say upon whom rests the responsibility of scattering our forces in such a manner as to preclude the possibility of concert of unity of action. I can only say that I acted under orders, and by so doing lost 24 brave Kansans killed, about the same number wounded, and 68 taken prisoners. This has been a Kansas Memory, a Kansas Historical Society podcast. The documents used in this podcast are from Kansas Memory, a virtual repository of primary sources from our collections. The URL for this website is www.kansasmemory.org.